Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Occasionally, there are people so successful that even in the process of watching them, one experiences a feeling of decided otherness. Overwhelmingly dominant in their field, they are clearly something special, different, alien. But what I find myself thinking is an alternate thought. Yes, they are alien. Yes, they are fucking demigods. But we've all met someone who initially they seemed unattainably put together. Then we got to know them and it was just the fucking grind. You know, growing up, my Taekwondo instructor, I was just like, oh my God, you're just so jacked. You're a giant. You're so fucking good. But now thinking back on it, you know, I would come in for a four o'clock class and he'd be covered in sweat. He'd been hitting the bag by himself for two hours, training, grind. You know, in college, that smart kid that I looked at, I'm like, oh my God, you're so fucking smart. Then he got in our fraternity and I hung out with him and I was like, wow, actually his secret, he just, he just does the practice problems and the homework. Holy shit. If I do that, I could be smart too. And it did. I did. It turned out that way. <laughs> what a good sentence. And so, you know, we see these people and we realize their magic is just discipline and we can take their fucking magic. But I've always wondered, you know, could we do that for the truly great? You know, it's one thing to hang out with the top sales guy at your company, steal all his fucking closing lines and you become the number one salesperson. But what about Dave Sandler, the all father of sales himself? Could I hang out with him for five years and become better than I could ever imagine? What if I apprenticed under Achilles for five years? Would I emerge the second best fighter to ever live? Maybe I befriend Richard Dawkins and hang out with him. Would I absorb all of his philosophy and British accent through diffusion? Or Dan Gable? You know, if I grew up with Dan Gable as my brother when I was trying to hang out with my girlfriend, he's called me on the fucking phone. Hey, it's time to wrestle. Like, I'm trying to wrestle. No, man wrestling. Fuck. Okay, I'll be right over. How far could I have even taken it? Because it seems like even the minor exposure... To these greats, uh, I've heard them called toxic winners, you know, very cool way to describe it. It feels like a college education. And my cautious answer to the question of, if I apprenticed under the best, could I become the best? My cautious answer is yes. You know, if we found ourselves in a NASCAR pit crew and our only option was figure out how to change these tires fast as fuck or we'll die... I'd assume that we pretty quickly become tire-changing fucking masters. Now, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know that I'm I'm not really a sports guy. Um, you know, I like activities. I, you know, it's like Jocko was on, or Thea Vaughn was on Jocko's podcast. And he's like, hey, what sports do you play? He's like, uh, outdoor activities. He's like, no, sports. He's like, uh, like a hiking. 
Like, no, sports. Okay, no sports. So I'm kind of like that. I like outdoor activities. But, you know, I'm not like, you know, hit the ball, master. I don't really like that. But as rappers and philosophers have both independently said, real recognizes real, goddammit. Because when we are talking about the greats, there is one man that stands above the rest for his greatness, his otherworldly obsession, and his ability to, to push himself to levels that humanity thought were impossible, and then double it for 10 years straight. And that person is Michael Jordan. There's a quote uh, that I think we're going to have in here, but I fucking like it, so we're saying it two times. Um, and it goes something like, it's possible that no one has ever been as good at anything in any field ever as Michael Jordan was at the game of basketball. And my first read of this book, his biography, was when I was stealing my soul for death in the hopes of becoming a financial advisor. And it's somewhat fitting as I read his biography again, now, six years later, as I once again steal my soul for death and prepare over this Christmas break for at least eight months of the most inhuman and savage sales activities awaits me. Because at work, I'm in what Musashi would call the critical point. If I destroy everything for eight months, my godhood is likely. If I pussy out, regret forever. So as I sit here, reaching out once again for strength, and I return to a text that gave me strength in the past, because even the simple act of knowing how far a human can push something, even in a totally different and kind of stupid discipline, reminds me that we only have one life. And do I want to live that life as a normal person or as a fucking savage? I don't know. We'll see. Not committing yet, but maybe. Lean in one of those ways. You can figure it out. And so if you couldn't tell from the damn introduction, and even I think I even said it, we are covering Michael Jordan's biography. Now this book is like 700 pages and it's written by this fella Roland Lazenby. Now see Roland this bitch can write. Let me say it in a different way. This bitch can fucking write. If all history books were written like this I might have actually paid attention in school. So in addition to being the envy of all the dads and the fever dreams of all the MILFs. Roland weaves us a tale the likes of which are usually reserved for bedtime stories, evil spells, and Viking war chants. Ernest Hemingway's son is here to face fornicate us with the English language so hard we identify as Mr. Darcy and we feel a weird compulsion to read Henry David Thoreau. Because a quick intro on Roland is, I, I, I followed him on Twitter, He's 70. He's got 15,000 followers. Not that much. See a lot of hot ladies on Twitter with a lot more than that. But hey, you know, he's, he's doing what he can with what he's got. Uh, he likes Kurt Vonnegut, that uh, author from Indiana. Uh, he's written a shitload of good books about sports stars. Um, and he, he's apparently just finished recently, like the, this month. And just pretend, I don't know when you're listening to this, but recently I uh, just finished an 800-page book on Magic Johnson. So when most 70-year-olds have retired to old folks' homes where they play shuffleboard and get sexually transmitted diseases, Roland lays his giant, veiny, wise intellect on the table and shouts at us until we look at it and acknowledge its superiority. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's a nice penis, okay? Please. 
put it away. There's children here. And today, he's here to guide us into the murky world of sports, the world of superstardom, and the world of becoming the best there ever was at something. And it is my hope that even if we don't understand everything here, even if we don't even really know, like, I think the orange thing goes in the fucking circle, even if we're like that, I hope and I believe that we can absorb through fucking diffusion the outlook and mindset of a god. So this is, this is going to be an incomplete telling of his story. Um, you know, I'm going to spend most of the time painting the picture of how he became who he was because, you know, it's like I've always said, uh, you know, the John D. Rockefeller biography situation, you know, there was like a thousand pages, 700 of them were really awesome, 300 of them were like, man, I'm so fucking rich. It's super hard to give away all my money. I'm so fucking rich. It's like, hey, bitch, great problem to have. So we're going to we're gonna walk with him as he becomes Air Jordan, the best basketball player ever. But then right when it gets interesting, if we're sports fans, right at the pinnacle when he's about to go win championship after championship, we're going to depart this bitch because I actually don't fucking care about basketball. All lessons have been stolen from the void, and you can do the technique of read the book, little buddy. Read the book. So I'm sucking out the gold, but prepare your hearts. This is going to be a journey. But as always... My covenant to you, my priests, is if you hold out, if you make it through, this might be the thing that allows you to shapeshift like a skinwalker and access Wi-Fi signals purely with your mind. Prologue. The defender's eyes grow wide, as they well should. He is about to face the kind of kinesthetic brilliance that first motivated humans to invent slow-motion technology. Something. Anything that would allow them to review exactly what happens when movement plays tricks on the mind. God damn it, Roland. That shit is fucking miraculous. And so uh, we're going to do a little drinking game. Every time that Roland has insane mastery of the English language, drink. <sighs> the claws, the law again. The setting is painfully familiar. Something in the offensive structure has broken down at the other end of the floor, igniting a fast break. So, other team done fucked up. Michael Jordan's on the run. The entire defense is retreating. The defender has sprinted back down the floor, and as he turns, he sees a blur. The dark form in red has the ball, dribbling and winding his way through the chaos at great speed. At this exact moment, the tongue falls out of his face. Sometimes, it shows just slightly between the teeth, but at this moment, the full tongue drops grotesquely like some comic doll silently mocking the defender. There's a leering, obscene quality to the expression, as if the coming dunk itself won't be insult enough. For ages, warriors have instinctively made such faces to frighten one another. Whatever the 22-year-old Michael Jordan gains full clarity now, Flashing the tongue at the defender like he is Shiva himself, the ancient god of death and destruction driving the lane. The defense has collapsed to the lane, but the spindly form is already airborne, floating through them, switching the ball to his mammoth right hand as he approaches the goal. For an instant, his arm is cocked, cobra-like, ready to strike as he glides towards the rim, hanging alone time seemingly suspended as he calmly measures the finish. For spectators, 
The singular thunk of the throwdown is deeply stirring. It elicits a Pavlovian response, perhaps almost carnivorous, like watching a lion devour an antelope on the Nature Channel. God damn it again, Roland. Drink. So he's just describing the fucking abject mastery that Michael Jordan would come to possess. The rarest talent is like a comet streaking briefly across the sky, captured only by the trailing flash of its brilliance. Michael Jordan's entire mesmerizing playing career left fans, the media, his former coaches and teammates, even Jordan himself, still struggling to comprehend what had happened years after he last played. Fuck. So he's saying, the rarest talent which Michael Jordan had streaks briefly across the sky with no damn explanation everybody's looking back like was that an alien yes yes it was in the beginning he was simply mike jordan just another adolescent from north carolina with an uncertain future contemplating a stint in the air force after high school the early 1980s marked his startling transformation into michael the archangel of the rims in the process, his persona propelled the rise of Nike's business empire, which soon made him its young emperor, a role that both freed and imprisoned him. He became the very picture of competence. God damn it again, Roland drank. What a master. What a well-crafted fucking sentence. Nobody, it seemed, could do anything quite as well as Michael Jordan played basketball. His competence was exceeded only by his confidence. The convergence of culture and technology had thrust him into this unparalleled role as the soaring godhead of a global sports and merchandising empire who left just about everyone agog at his spectacle. Yet timing and luck were merely the foundation of this mystery. So this guy has this superstardom fucking rise and there's a little bit of timing and luck, like perfect timing, Nike's this size of a company, he does this shoe deal, he's on the right place at the right time. And that's important, but sports psychologist George Mumford was transfixed the first time he observed Jordan's animated approach to practice at age 32. Having heard about his great appetites and how little he slept, the psychologist who had just begun working for the Bulls immediately suspected that the star was manic depressive or bipolar, or perhaps even both. He was frenetic all over the place with this energy, and I thought he can't sustain that. But over the coming weeks, this psychologist learned that that's a shitty fucking major and he should have majored in finance because God damn it, there's no signs, no signs of depression. Mumford came to realize that the animation and hyper competitiveness was simply Michael Jordan. But Jordan was clearly something else. The zone of high performance that other athletes struggled to achieve was something that Jordan accessed on a regular basis. Michael did have to find something to motivate himself into that state, Mumford explained. The more you have those moments in the zone, the more you want to have them. But most people can't sustain them. His ability to find that state, his ability to concentrate, to lock in, were almost superhuman. He was coming from a different place, man. Jordan would spend much of his early career figuring out how to harness these gifts and use them in a team format because above everything else, he badly needed to win. While his flight, so him, him being able to jump fucking a million years, had first gained the audience's attention, it was his overwhelming competitiveness that allowed him to keep it. 
So clarifying a little bit as Roland spins this yarn, but um, some psychologist bitch, uh, fella, sorry, fired up. Some esteemed man named George was a psychologist for the Bulls. And, you know, he's just getting out of academia. And so, like, anytime you see atypical behavior, you're like, disorder. So he's looking, he's like, well, that guy's either on meth, which I'm pretty sure he's not, or disorder. So thinking that he's a manic depressive, because, you know, you think about those people with bipolar, you know, they're like, fuck yeah, they divorce their wife, they like go to a strip club, they invest in a fucking rock crushing business, and then like four days later, they're like, oh no, then they fall to the ground, and then they're depressed for two weeks, they come crawling back to their wife, and nobody cares about rocks. So he was like, fuck, that is probably what Michael Jordan is. But he kept waiting for that crash, waiting for that crash, and then he's like, wait a second. This bitch is like this all the time. What the hell? And he realized as he started to dig in a little bit more that it was his massive competitiveness that was driving him through this entire thing. And so he's like, well, yeah, we're going rock crushing business. But like the reason he was able to sustain that was because he put himself into this fight or flight, massive competition, life or death attitude every single day and that was good but also had some negative effects as we'll learn uh that realization so the realization that the overwhelming competitive competitiveness was what allowed him to keep the spotlight that realization was hammered home for many fans in 2009 by jordan's jarring acceptance speech during his basketball hall of fame induction now so these these hall of fame inductions I'm saying this like I fucking know anything, but, uh, you know, these Hall of Fame, you know, this is standard practice. These Hall of Fame inductions, you're supposed to give like a, like a thankful speech. Like, oh yeah, I want to thank God. And then I wanted to thank my mom. And then, you know, Guns and Roses. Ha ha ha. And, uh, you know, I just really, all my coaches and my teammates, I couldn't have done it without you. So that's what it's supposed to be. You can add a little baby joke in there, but like, that's what it's fucking supposed to be. And Jordan... So the best ever, the golden boy of the world, gets inducted to the Hall of Fame, and he goes down this laundry list, and he's like, yeah, you know, Isaiah Thomas, I've not fucking forgiven you. You know that time that, that you know, John Smith, that you made fun of me before the game? Yeah, fuck you. I wish in a simpler time I would have killed you. And everybody's looking like, what? What the fuck? This is like a, this is a speech. Like, I thank God. I thank my mom. He's like... You know, fuck off to anyone who doubted me. You know, that one time you didn't play me in high school. I hate you. They thought they knew him. They did not. So that is the complicated fellow we're dealing with. The god of basketball, as he would be called by fans worldwide, was born with a bloody nose in Brooklyn, of all places. Despite the aura of this Brooklyn beginning, it was elsewhere and much earlier that the full force of Jordan's extraordinary life gained its first traction. Just before the turn of the 20th century, so just before goddamn 1900, with the birth of his great-grandfather down on North Carolina's coastal plain. So this is where Roland, like, we would just have to do like a, just a continuous, you know, like that um, that that uh, drinking game where you do thunder, t -t 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 -t, whatever the fucking song is. You just drink until everybody's memories don't work. Like, if we really wanted to truly acknowledge Roland's greatness, we would have to just just chug a hundred beers. But so he's now going to go take. Uh, he's saying, okay, we're going to tell the origin story of Michael Jordan. But the way we're going to do that 
is actually, it starts way before Michael Jordan, before his dad, before his grandpa. It starts with his great grandpa, who was born on the coastal plain sometime in 1800. In those days, death seemed to be everywhere. It had a nose to it that crept upstream each morning and curdled with the brackish air. The gulls screamed like banshees in those little shanty towns where nobody dared take simple survival for granted. That's really where the story of Michael Jordan's life begins, in a shotgun shack on the banks of a Blackwater River that winds among the pine forest and swamps, where the moonshine drips oh so quietly and the mystery hangs like clumps of gray moss sagging from the trees. God damn it, Roland. Okay, I know I said a drink. So, so he's saying, you know, there's a, I'm using context clues and I read the book. So um, there's all these shanty towns and that's where the, like, recently freed slaves lived but it's like fucking tenement like shitty horrible and death has a nose death is sniffing and it's creeping upstream each morning nobody is safe death is all around the year was 1891 just 26 summers removed from the great violence and confusion of the american civil war one of the region's vast plantations was supposedly owned by a white preacher from Georgia named Jordan. With emancipation, many freed slaves gravitated to Holly Shelter. They settled the swamp. Holly Shelter was nothing but swamp. Soon enough, though, the hard times of the era would render the name devoid of meaning. So shelter, meaning, hey, I'm safe. Uh-uh. For there was little shelter to be had. Which was the remarkable thing about the baby boy. He arrived on a typical sweltering day in late 1891, following yet another run of the coastal storms that so often menaced the people living on the river. Coroners recorded staggering numbers of stillbirths and infant deaths in those shotgun shacks. So many, in fact, that families often waited days, even weeks, to name their newborns. Like, oh, what's his name? His name is we're gonna see if he lives. Oh, fuck. What a boner killer. Oh, God. Uh, I don't know. Sorry, Roland. Uh, this baby, however, was very much alive. Evidenced by a squalling that would jolt his mother awake. Just as many years later, his rich basso profundo would make his fidgety six-year-old great-grandson Michael snap into focus and behave. So Jordan's great-grandpa, yeah, he, he didn't even think about dying when he was a baby. He thought about yelling. And then later, when Jordan would live with him, that deep voice, manly, powerful, would make six-year-old fucking Michael Jordan listen up. Michael Jordan's great-grandfather would live a life of grinding poverty amid relentless racism. Worse yet was the grim death that would take his loved ones and friends and cousins. Just about anybody, really. Infants and little girls and strapping young men, death would take them all, mostly right in the bloom of life in those coastal communities. But all these days lay ahead for the baby boy. On the day of his birth in June 1891, his 21-year-old mother, Charlotte Hand, was in a bit of a pinch as she's not as she was not married to his father, a man named Dick Jordan. Uh, Dawson Jordan, so that's a great-grandfather, father, uh, grew into a young man who at first glance would seem to have little in common with his statuesque great-grandson. Dawson was short, 
just 5'5 by some accounts, and stocky. And he was crippled, consigned to dragging a bad leg along with him wherever he went over the course of his life. But like his great-grandson, Dawson Jordan possessed tremendous physical strength, and he proved equally fearless, with an uncommon toughness accomplishing feats as a young man that would become the subject of lore in his community for decades later. More importantly, against foes that those in later generations couldn't begin to understand, Dawson Jordan somehow remained unbowed and undefeated. He was tough, Michael would say, of the old man. He was that, yes he was. You begin to gain the slightest sense of Dawson Jordan's world if you stand in the morning air along the North Cape Fear River in Holly Shelter. Today, the place is mostly a rural game and wildlife preserve, which means there's probably some legit hunting there, but it's unethical. Dawson Jordan spent his youth there, working amidst the tar pits on the forest floors, taking down the last of the magnificent trees, bundling the logs into huge rafts, and floating them down the Northeast Cape Fear River to the shipyards of Wilmington. It was no job for cowards. So Roland, he just like goes there. He's like, hey, I got to understand my story. I'm going to drive to Michael Jordan's great grandfather's like place of work. What a fucking, what a detailed job. Respect, Roland. And when he's there, he just is imagining, you know, all these big giant trees that are now just still echoes of what they were before because in you know 1890 they just cut down all these giant trees logging you know his guy's got a crippled leg but like he's gonna make it happen and at the time there was just deathly poverty um a study of a thousand farming families uh in 1922 found that the state's sharecroppers earned less than 50 cents a day so that's i bet like less than five dollars a day or something you know twenty dollars a day or something now like uh, horrible poverty still dawson jordan seemed to enjoy the independence of working on the river census records list him as working on his own account rather than the employ of someone else in addition the work offered the regular opportunity to ride down the ride down to the exotic port city of wilmington with its busy harbor full of ships and sailors from all over the world and its many bars. One can imagine Dawson Jordan sitting on his raft in a calm spot in the river on a cold, clear night a century ago, gazing up at the brilliant stars. It is likely that those nights on the river, underneath the firmament, offered young Dawson his only true moments of escape from a world that was often overwhelming. This was, perhaps, about as good as it got for Michael Jordan's great-grandfather. So he's just imagining, like, hey, imagine that you're fucking Dawson Jordan, crippled leg, you know, rampant racism, grinding fucking poverty. You got a boat, you're working for your own account, you're delivering down to Wilmington, you look up and you see the stars. And that's probably, like, the only time you're ever able to relax. Decades later, his great-grandson would remark that his moments on the basketball court were also his only haven, his only times of true peace, his singular escape from a world that was deeply troubling and far more frustrating than any of his millions of fans could imagine. In very different ways, these two Jordans shared much across the span of a century. You know what to do. Drink. God damn it, Roland. We're going to get wasted if you keep acting like this. What a solid piece of writing. You know, he's like digging back to his great-grand 
his great grandfather than saying like the only times he'd get peace is staring up the stars much like his grandson great grandson uh you know the only time that he'd get peace is on the basketball court you know fuck off bro leave some dick for the rest of us and then dawson you know he met a lady had a son but then she died and um you know it's not uncommon at the time for a young widower to abandon his children you know hey man it's every man for himself fuck you dude i already got a messed up leg i don't need a kid that's what moms are for sorry your mom died but no that's not what he's doing he loved his son that's what his actions said and his determination to build a family provided the first great fiber of strength in the story that would become michael jordan the boy who always wanted a family was now quite alone except for the busy little child under his feet father and son would spend the rest of their lives together living and working in one small shack after another in the same small coastal communities pooling their resources to make their way in the face of poverty so that's crazy uh you know like think about that if his great-grandfather had abandoned his son we wouldn't have michael jordan and that and that like the fucking thread of fate going through all this shit is is interesting uh, these days the interstate highway systems cloak much of Cape Fear's disquieting legacy with miles of even payments. Uh, so there was racism, there was riots, there was just KKK everywhere. It was horrible. But at the same time, around when Dawson was coming up, a game was starting to take hold in both the black and white culture. In a seismic valley of hate, a shaky bridge stretched between the blacks and whites. Basketball. So that's interesting. You're saying it's, you know, imagine like we take relaxation time and, you know, you know, I need to be like balanced mental health. Like that's, and, and, and do that's all important for real. Like I'm, I'm coming off of a two week vacation right now because it came in, got to balance my mental health, got to relax, you know, got to, got to get prepared for death. But, you know, the only relaxation that you have is when you're, you know, still working, you know, cause you got to make sure that the fucking boat doesn't crash. But you're looking up at the stars and you're just just chilling and then you know there's just rampant racism shit's crazy everybody's dying and then a spark and that spark is basketball the black people and the white people you know the opposing tribes they fucking both like it and this game compounds and compounds and compounds from 1900 until we get to our hero today if his great-grandfather dawson first stoked the furnace of michael's life it was Michael Jordan's mother, Dolores, who brought fiery propulsion to the mix. While they were not wealthy, Dolores' family was far from poor. Theirs had been a determined progress through the hazards and pitfalls that claimed so many farmers, white or black. That said, there's little question that the obstacles Dolores Jordan faced fired her efforts in raising her family. As a result, they also provided the very fuel of Air Jordan. Appropriately, the families that would become Michael Jordan's gene pool first met on the hardwood in a cramped gym filled with cheering students. Okay, so uh, Michael Jordan's mom met Michael Jordan's dad in a basketball gym, and uh, she stalked him. She hid in his car. She was like, hey, I'm going to get a ride back from this guy. When, they, when he drove to her house, he was about to drive by it, and he's like, hey, stop. And he's like, I didn't realize that I had someone else in here. Hey, you're pretty cute. And uh, she's like, hey, you're pretty fresh. Which, 
I think is the like, you know, 1950s way of saying like, damn, you look pretty fucking fire, boy. And and Michael Jordan's dad responds, I could be fresh. I'll marry you someday. Imagine you find a stowaway in your in your fucking car and like two seconds later, you're saying, I'm going to marry you, girl. But hey, you know, it was fate. It wasn't long before James approached Edward Peoples about dating his daughter, a hardworking, no-nonsense man. Peoples didn't think much of the idea, but he didn't fucking care, and she got pregnant when she was 15. Uh, They went to a movie, he proposed, and then they moved in with fucking Dawson Jordan, who's now 66. So, like, you know, I I heard that quote that's like, uh, always fear an old man in a young man's game. No, it's like if there's a if there's a 65 year old mercenary, uh, hey buddy, what the fuck is going on with you? Because you probably got some stories. So Dawson Jordan still alive, still fucking pissed. He um he now has to take in his son's girlfriend. They just got married. Okay, so like and on the flipping it around, you're 15. You move in with that dude who is just a savage. I mean, he's just used aggression to make his way through life. He's still very alive and well. He's goddamn in charge. But Jordan's mom's kind of a badass and she pops out four kids. And, you know, the family's living in like a small ass house, but, you know, getting by, but it still sucks. And then it's time to shit out Michael Jordan, the fifth kid. When Michael was born, we thought there might be something wrong with him because he had a nosebleed. Young Michael would spend his formative years on sleepy little Calico Bay Road. By all accounts, he was easy to laugh, eager to please, and hungry to entertain, which also earned his share of spankings. You, have, you had to discipline him, his mom once remembered. He would test you to the limit. Michael was always getting into things. But, you know, even this, it was like hearing about young Dan Gable, like, you know, nothing necessarily, you look at this and you say, yeah, okay, obviously. Like, like if you have a vampire as a kid, you're going to realize pretty quick because they don't need to eat and they're real thirsty. But nothing here obviously suggests that you have a god in your house. But there's, there's flashes of it. It soon became evident that Michael's bountiful nature could not be contained as he grew into childhood. Uh, one time he tried to like light a fucking wasp nest on fire with gasoline. A couple things wrong with that situation. Um, he stacked a bunch of lawn chairs high and was like standing on them. Then he fell and broke his fucking arm. But perhaps the biggest trouble came when he slipped away from his house. He crossed the road to his grandparents' place where he found an older cousin chopping wood. Now, pretty sure that he encountered a psychopath because... The cousin, a fucking psychopath, told him, hey, I'll give you a dollar if you chop off your own toe. Eager to impress, definitely not a bitch, Jordan raised the axe and let it fall, just on the tip of his toe, then immediately howled in pain and took off back across the field. So there's flashes here, because like, you know what a normal person would do is like, hey, yeah, I'm not going to chop off my fucking toe. What Jordan was doing is like, yeah, you can't beat me. Fuck it. I don't care. I'll chop off my own fucking toe. I got 10 of them still. That competitive drive. He was the youngest. He, he, everything was stacked against him. And it turned into he was this entertainer. And he spent hours dancing, singing, teasing, whatever it took to, br- to bring a smile, grin, or laugh. He did. 
He could never play by himself. He always needed an audience, and he would not let us ignore him no matter how hard we tried. But speaking of Sparks, there was something going on with this little fellow. It took the fewest of words to set him off. Sometimes nothing more than the faintest trace of a smirk. He was also capable of making things up, conjuring up an affront out of thin air. That's what they would all realize afterwards. He would seize on apparently meaningless cracks or gestures and plunge them deep into his heart until they glowed radioactively the nuclear fuel rods of his great fire. Okay, fucking drank. And so what that fucking poetry was basically saying is that, you know, this happy-go-lucky entertainer kid, oh yeah, fuck yeah, look at me, I'm Jordan. But then the slightest slight, the slightest perceived issue. Oh, I think I can beat you. He, he would blow that shit out of proportion. He would sometimes, we'd even realize later, make stuff up. Like, you know, you sneeze next to him in math class and he's like fucking trying to get me sick, bitch. This guy trying to get me sick, bitch. And he just gets that deep into his heart, burns that in, and then will use that fuel for nine months to uh, beat you at basketball. Only much later would the public come to understand just how incapable he was of letting go of even the tiniest details. Many observers mistakenly thought that these affronts were laughable things of Michael's own manufacture little devices to spur his competitive juices and that he could jokingly toss them aside when he was done with them after he had wrung another sweaty victory from the evening. But he could not let go any more than he could shed his right arm. So you think, oh man, this guy's like the most successful ever. This is, he's going to be great. And then, you know, you joke with him once. You're like, man, I thought you were good at layups. <laughs> he hates you forever. And you're like, oh, you know, maybe maybe he's using this to motivate himself. Like, he's getting older. Like, he's trying to get motivated. And, and then, like, 14 years, two apologies. You got him a dog and you gave him $100,000. He finally is like, yeah, I guess you can you can be in the same room as me. Because that, that shit, it, it wasn't fun for him. It wasn't play for him. He couldn't let it go any more than he could shed his right arm. Many of the things that deeply offended Michael Jordan were hardly the stuff of stinging rebuke, except perhaps the very first one, which as it turned out later, was the most important of them all. Just go to the house with the women. Just go to the house with the women. Of the millions of sentences that James Jordan uttered to his youngest son, this was the one that glowed neon bright across the decades. God, drink. Oh, damn it, Roland. This is going to be the first book review podcast where there's a murder on the podcast. I don't. There's no one in the room. Who would I, it's a clause. We're here. Don't worry. So what, what, that, um, what that saying is, so, so his dad was always working on cars and shit. And, you know, Michael's the youngest. And you get, I think he had like three brothers, two brothers. And so the older brothers would be like, you know, out working with dad. And be like, hey. Can you hand me the 9 16th wrench? And they'd be like, sure, dad, here you go. And then Michael would out, be out there because, you know, he couldn't be alone. So he's like wanting to entertain and wanting to be out there. And, you know, his dad be like, hey, hand me the 9 16th wrench. And he's like, what's that? He used to get irritated with me and say, you don't know what the hell you're doing. Go on in there with the women. So Jordan didn't know what's going on. And his dad makes the fucking grave mortal mistake of saying, 
Son, go on inside with the women. You're not needed here. His father's words rang as a challenge to his adolescent masculinity. Even then, as the first hormonal surges were starting to thicken his features, he remained a cherubic figure, which I think means like baby-faced. One that his siblings adored and his mother delighted in pulling into her embrace. But it was a disguise. So he's saying, even then, even young Jordan, hey, go back inside with the women. On the surface, on the surface, you look at him, I was such a cute little baby. You know, I remember I lived in the ghetto one time and I was buying, you know, buying a, like a 36 pack of Corona. And I, and I walked out and this lady's like, oh, you're so cute. Are you old enough to buy that? Oh, you're so cute. And I was like, fuck off. I, I said that in my mind. I just kind of like, eh, did like a like weird little mouth smile without the teeth and just like walked and checked out. But that is what he looked like. But that was all a fucking disguise because deep down, his father's mean words had activated deep within him some errant strand of DNA, a mutation of competitive nature so strong as to almost seem titanium. God, God damn it, Roland, I can't do this. Ah, drink. So that's super interesting. And we saw the same thing with Dan Gable. You know, after he lost that that wrestling match, his mom comes in and is like, he didn't say, didn't even say, you know what you're acting like. He said. Do you know what you are? A molly putz. And those words awoke similar latent psychotic DNA and Dan shoveled every single fucking driveway in Iowa and metamorphosized himself into a fucking savage. And so what we see here is that these, you know, this is just like interesting, but these super winners, you know, these toxic winners, it's not really like they have this great positive attitude. You know, it's not like, man, you know, just... Have a, just help everybody and you know just if you believe hard enough you can achieve hard enough it, it seems like the attitude's more like fuck you watch me like you don't think i can be successful dad fuck off long after other normal people have taken up their station in life and let their dreams die and work at an insurance company i'm gonna be getting up at 5 a.m to shoot fucking baskets without even realizing it they lock in on an answer and deliver it over and over, confirming that they do not need to go into the house with the women. And they continue to confirm it even after their father has gone to dust, as if unconsciously yelling across time in an argument with the old man. Okay, I'd fucking say drink, because damn, that shit's poetic as well, but god damn it. We're all legit gonna die, Roland. So I'm just gonna nod and smile like I did to that lady in Ghetto Kroger. Mmm, yes, thank you. Mmm, get out of my way. And acknowledge, good sentence, Roland. Um, and so the last, in this, in this first episode, the last thing we're gonna introduce is that kid had that fucking fire in him and he doesn't know where to put it. And around the time that Michael Jordan's dad was telling him to go live amongst the women, James Jordan put up a basketball hoop for his sons in the backyard. And with that, the obsession began in earnest. After watching the 1972 Olympics, Michael came into the kitchen and told his mother, hey, I'm gonna win the Olympics one day. Don't worry. Dolores later recalls, I smiled at myself and I said, honey, it takes a lot to win a gold medal. The plot, however, had been set in motion. The main event every day became Michael versus Larry, his brother, older brother, in titanic games of one-on-one. -on -one. 
Though Michael was nearly a year younger, he already stood above his stronger older brother. Michael was mouthier, but they both talked trash, anything to get under the other's skin. The contest quickly turned physical, then heated. When, ye when the yelling and arguing grew to a pitch, Dolores Jordan would, would step to the back door to enforce the peace. Day after day, they went after each other, with, with Larry able to use his strength to dominate his younger brother despite the height disadvantage. So, basketball hoop, holy fuck. Now, you know what they're going to do? They are going to go at each other with one-on-one. -on -one. There's no coach. There's no one to teach him how to do this. I'm sure their dad's like, hey, here's a ball. I'm going to go work. And so they just are learning it themselves. And his older brother is better. He's bigger, and he's just able to beat the shit out of Michael for a year and a half. I think Michael got so good because Larry used to beat him all the time. He took it hard. And Michael says, we grew up on one-on-one. -on -one. So, so we can see those initial indications. You know, almost like an errant conqueror gene, but it's activated by words. And millions of other kids have encountered those same words and done nothing. But then it's honed by being the youngest and getting fucking wrecked for a year and a half. These backyard battles would determine the nature of the two brothers' adult relationship, a closeness tempered by sibling rivalry. They also established the manner in which Michael would relate to teammates throughout his playing career. A teammate recalls that Jordan would seek out the best player, pester him to play one-on-one -on -one constantly, and then have a limitless attention span for trying to kill the other person. And so that's crazy because that, that's the attitude. That's how he got introduced. That's what he carries on his heart for basketball. It's like for me, for pool, you know, I grew up gambling with my dad playing pool, talking some trash, but like, because he was amused by it. Then I got in the fraternity and I realized there's a, there ain't no rules in pool. This is about war. This is death. And so a couple of my really good friends, we got deep into pool and we played the rules were like, as long as you didn't touch the ball, anything went. You know, you could put dicks and nut sacks and butt cheeks on the table. You could twerk your naked ass behind the most important eight ball shot. And you know what? I welcome you to do it because do you think that's going to break my focus? <laughs> There's only one of us in this room that's naked and it's not me. And that type of attitude going into when, when I played at a pool hall, me and my friend went, we were like getting rowdy as hell. And we're looking around and everybody else is wearing like fucking pool jerseys and like where's the wearing this one glove and uh and i'm better than them and so that is that is the attitude where like think of if i've only grown up playing pool on like a pool league like oh well this is the way it's done you know this is you know there's no asses around here and so and we've got this crazy competitive kid he's just recently taken deep personal offense to being told to go inside with the women and now he's got one outlet and it's basketball. It was the same everywhere he went, explained George Mumford, the psychologist who later worked with Jordan. Each opponent loomed as a Larry to be conquered. And even eventually, you know, Michael and his dad were super close. Michael had secured his father's affection. Clearly on some level, Jordan himself had gained that knowledge. But on another level, the one that mattered most, such information never registered on the impenetrable core of a competitor's psyche. Michael Jordan's immutable agenda had been set, and on the slightest trigger, it could let loose a tide of passion that would stir others to wide wonder. And so with that, we're getting introduced to this hero, this insane person, this massively competitive 
younger brother with the biggest chip on his shoulder that's ever existed. And there's flashes of greatness. But for a year and a half, he just looks like a younger brother getting killed playing basketball. So if you want to learn about all the other things that happen, his career, how he grows into the best ever, it's going to be a journey. But Roland is here. I am here. Tune back in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.